Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Friday, October 9th, 2020. I am John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. So the front runner for the uh, presidential election has decided to take the view or the stance that uh, on the question of the most significant reordering of the three branches of government since the decision, since the constitutional amendment that uh, that made the Senate directly elected by the voters, meaning the change in the size of the Supreme Court, he will not say what his position is on this matter until after the election. Uh, it is 25 days or 26 days until the election. And he is very deliberately said flatly that he does not want this to be an issue and therefore he will not say yay or nay to the idea that the Supreme Court should be increased in size to dilute the power of the conservative majority. Well, he actually said very explicitly that if I was to answer your question flatly, it would be all over the press. You'd write about it, which is a tacit admission that voters would be really, really interested in that, which they very well should be. I I don't recall ever hearing a candidate be so nakedly uh, contemptuous towards voters on an issue of such weight and gravity. I mean, I can see, we've been talking for months about how the Biden strategy is to say, this election is not about me, it's about Trump. And I am going to do everything I can to make sure that I am as anodyne as possible so that I can be the vessel for the anti-Trump vote and uh, a consensus candidate for Democrats of all stripes so anti-trump voters progressive voters old line you know union voter however however you want to slice it that's who i'm going to be and my views on issues don't really matter all that much and shouldn't matter all that much this is the most naked expression of that strategy which is a strategy it's not a philosophy it's not a it's not a vote for me because i am x it is literally saying my strategy is i'm not going to tell you i'm not going to take a position on something uh that is controversial that probably you're not going to like and that the people who really want it wouldn't like if i said that i was against them i'm just not not going to do it and then he's betting on a compliant press to let him get away with this. But I mean, whether it's hubris, contempt or strategy, it's a weirdly Trumpian way to respond, I found. I mean, I was struck by how dismissive and I actually would lean more towards it's contemptuous of voters, as Noah said, because they I think voters have a right to know what your position is going to be on something as serious as this. And there are other ways he could have addressed it. I mean, he could have said, well, if you know, if, if the if the Barrett nomination is going to be brought to a vote before the election, then I don't feel like I need to answer this. We'll see what happens. I mean, there are a lot of ways he could have actually, in good faith, addressed the concern that some voters have about court packing. Um, and there's a reason you call court pack. It's usually referred to as a court packing scheme. I mean, this is this is a this is a pretty serious thing they're contemplating. And I don't think it's good enough to just say, well, trust me, Um because the whole point of his campaign is that we can trust him in a way that we can't trust Trump. So if he gives answers like this, I feel that undercuts that message. Not good enough. It's abhorrent. It's absolutely repulsive. At least, I wrote about this for the po- for the website today, at least FDR had the decency to craft a cover story around his 1937 plan to, to pack the courts. The, the justices were too old. They're over 70. They're overworked. He was the one overworking them, but nonetheless, they can't do what they need to do. So we have to pack the Supreme Court. We have to pack the appellate bench, federal bench, in order to get stuff done, right? And his party was faced with a firestorm of controversy for six months, uh, which they bent under. 
They couldn't they couldn't abide this plan. And similarly, a Joe Biden presidency would be consumed by such an effort. And that's not what he wants. It, it, they're, they're taking themselves hostage and, and extorting us in the process. And I don't find the threat particularly compelling. But it is nevertheless very serious, in part because the party has been hijacked by these online activists who, in a fit of pique, haven't done a lick of strategic thinking and are bending the party towards their will in a self-destructive way. That's the sort of thing that has to be called out and resisted. And the Democratic Party seems to have no will to resist. Okay, so we have two issues. We have the, or three. We have a a moral issue, we have a practical political issue, and then we have a strategic issue. So the moral issue goes to, is it right, proper, in any way, shape, or form for the leading candidate for the presidency to play footsie with this gigantic alteration in the nature of the federal government of the United States? And and not to be clear on it, and not to just say where where he stands on it. Okay, that's 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 the moral issue. And no, you've said it's abhorrent, and I I think that's it's maybe a little strong, but you know, strong is okay. Uh, then we have the practical issue, which is: is this a serious proposal that can just sort of happen if Democrats want it to happen? Okay, well, there are two different things there. First of all, it depends upon, obviously it depends upon a victory, a Biden victory in November, and it more importantly depends upon Democrats taking control of the Senate, and then it depends upon Democrats having taken control of the Senate, eliminating the filibuster, and then... It takes the act of passing a piece of legislation that says that the court uh, can can grow in size by X number of justices. These are a series of things that have to happen for this to happen. And the moral or practical political justification for this is that in some sense, the conservative majority on the Supreme Court is illegitimate and it will be illegitimate for two reasons, one of which is that Brett Kavanaugh shouldn't have been confirmed because he did what it's clear he probably didn't do, but they can't stand not thinking that he did it. So not th- thinking that not thinking otherwise. So they're just going to pretend that the lack of evidence and the shameful uh, f- and the shameful peddling of false narratives See, about Kavanaugh to abhorrence here. No. Okay. <laughs> okay. So, so it's illegitimate because Kavanaugh shouldn't be on the court and then Barrett shouldn't be on the court because of this, you know, supposed timeline in which it's illegitimate for her to be nominated to the court, even though Barrett, first of all, we don't know she's going to get on the court. Let's assume she is uh, hearing starts next week, but um, Barrett isn't even on the court yet. And uh, her her appointment to the court and her confirmation would in and of itself not change the ideological composition of the court. It is the fact that the court leans to the right instead of to the left that is considered prima facie illegitimate. And why is it prima facie illegitimate? Because the Senate is illegitimate. Because the Senate uh, votes, this, the way the Senate is structured, every state gets two senators. So the rural states that lean Republican get more senators than the Democratic states, and therefore it's uh, this is a violation of one-man, one-vote Democratic procedure. And so not only does should the Senate's, should the fact that the there's a break on, on majoritarian ambition that is represented by the Senate structurally in the Constitution that should be overridden, but maybe they should even increase the number of states to increase the number of senators so that if you can't change one man, one vote in the, you know, this, this rule, you could at least get more reliable Democratic senators for a while so that your ambitions can be fulfilled. So this is a whole series of steps. And then strategically, would it be good or bad for Biden to say, that he was going to pack the court or that he wasn't going to pack the court. And obviously his answer is, I don't want to say anything and you can't make me. 
Can anyone make him? What will make him? I honestly think that this was a really bad move on his part uh, yesterday. At least Kamala Harris was cleverly evasive insofar as she did this farcical effort to expand the definition of what court packing constitutes to include filling existing vacancies, which is not court packing, um, the lack of diversity on, uh, on circuit court benches, which is not court packing. Even, um, you know, as researching, there was a real effort to try to accuse um, Mitch McConnell of stacking the court by lobbying a, a D.C. circuit judge to retire. Um, that is now stacking the court. They have expanded the definition of it so that it doesn't constitute what it, what it actually means. And that's an ambition that they actually know what they're lobbying for is particularly egregious and it cannot be justified on terms that we all agree upon. We have to change the terms of debate in order to justify what they're doing. And by not answering the press's question directly, indeed, being contemptuously dismissive of both their concerns and voters' concerns. Now, I do think there will be a sort of an unconscious desire on the part of reporters to move past it because it's a bad news cycle for him. But the pressures of the institution, the pressures of professionalism, will compel them to stay on this topic because he hasn't answered them. This is is just about the best example of the fragility of Biden's core proposition, which is that I will return you to normal, right? Because think of the country to a normal state of affairs. Because, John, think of the litany of steps, of of quite radical steps that you just laid out that would um, need to transpire for this to happen. There is nothing... Uh, standard and normal about that. Um, this is a very much a sort of Trump age shakeup that 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 is being proposed here, that is being floated. Right, and it's a Trump age shakeup because the idea is we are on the verge of um, living in a fascist state, and so uh, the um, the structure of American politics has to be changed to protect America from America. Well, but that and the and the fear and loathing of Trump has up to this point been such a powerful motivator uh, to ignore any weaknesses in Biden's candidacy. Um, and as the polls show, that's been effective. But I think Abe is right. I mean, we also saw yesterday the the squad come out with its here's our crazy liberal platform that we're gonna we're we're acknowledging right now we're gonna be pressuring Joe Biden to implement. And it's everything that, you know, conservatives are concerned about. It's everything Joe Biden and Kamala Harris tried to downplay in their debate performances. It's everything he will face on day one from his own party. So I think combined with this this unwillingness to answer this question about court packing, you, we should be concerned about how he's there is no normalcy there. I think Abe, that's a really good way of putting it, that it, it undermines this 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 uh, sort of uh, return to normalcy that everyone longs for, maybe, I mean, it suggests that actually the system itself, this is the new normal. Even when Trump is gone, this will be how politics works itself out. See, this is there's, 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 there's savage comic irony here in that uh, it was a tradition uh, in, the, in, in the United States that court nominees would not talk about their views on matters that might come before the court. And so, uh, you know, for a long time, because of the separation of powers and the idea that the, uh, you know, Congress should not be making decisions about court nominees or they shouldn't be making promises about how they would rule, however you want to slice it. And so for, I don't know, 150 years, there weren't even hearings, you know, you voted on judges up and down, whatever, um, then the pressure started building and building and building for for these people to talk about what how they would think about certain issues and um, in a horrible tactical strategic whatever you want to call it error uh, the controversial nomination of Bob Bork uh, they decided that he would address matters of controversy that were in his academic and ju- you know judicial history. And then basically handed his enemies, you know, basically the rope with which to hang him. And then you had David Souter a couple of years later saying, going so far in the other direction, not not that he would say he wouldn't address these matters because they might come before the court, but saying that he had never even had a thought in his head about Roe v. Wade. Not only had he never had a conversation about it, not only had he never written about it, 
a thought about Roe v. Wade never crossed his head. And now we have, you know, now we have these hearings in which, you know, people are going to say, Trump says, I, I'm picking Amy Coney Barrett because she's pro-life. And she and the and Democrats say, we're going to vote against her because she's pro-life, not because of how she feels about the re- reasoning and Roe v. Wade or something like that. And now a presidential candidate, a presidential candidate is basically saying, it would really be inappropriate for me to express my my views. I, 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 you know, the Supreme Court nominee should say how she's going to rule on future cases. But I, a politician that you vote for, I'm not going to talk about something that is so much in the air that we can see how we can lay out very precisely how it would happen in 2021 if they really, really wanted to go there. It would take him winning and then them winning, you know, a two or three seat majority in the Senate for it really to to go through. And the House, of course, being solidly Democratic. Uh, but, you know, it's not notional. It's not fanciful. It's a real practical possibility. So the, the history you outlined there is, is really valuable because when... legislative history nerds and and political history nerds and and partisans talk about uh, appointments to the federal bench, it it verges into like a a balkanized conversation about transgenerational conflicts. Um, You had uh, NBC News reporter Sahil Kapoor noting rightly that um, the reason why Harry Reid appealed to uh, the Philip, the abolishing the filibuster for lower court appointees was not just because of obstruction, but also there was a legislative effort by Republicans in the minority. It was, you know, showpiece legislation, but nevertheless, um, to shrink the DC circuit court of appeals and Sean Trende, who's an analyst over at RCP, real clear politics noted that, um, you know, the history is actually a little bit more involved here. It goes back into the 80s and 90s. And he went into how there have been gaps filling these seats over the course of years, stretching on into like half a decade and, and both parties being obstructionary about it. And um, it really does go back all the way to Abe Fortas. In, and so there's there's really no resolving these conflicts. It has become purely an exercise of power. And there is no real concession I think you can make. I mean, there was some concern when when um, uh, Justice Ginsburg passed that, you know, if there, if Republicans nominate someone to this, to this bench, it really might blow up the civic compact. And I don't think that's true uh, in part because it's, it's so very different from what Democrats are talking about now. But there is an element of irresolvable uh, raw power when it comes to conflicts, when it comes to, to federal court appointments. Right. And then you have this like, well, you did it first, right? It's like, well, Mitch going McConnell, back into the 60s. No, yeah. I know, of course. And be, well, Mitch McConnell did it first. He pushed the Barrett nomination through and, and, you know, and then, and then Mitch McConnell says, well, Harry Reid did it first because he eliminated the, fil- <clears throat> he eliminated the filibuster on lower court appointments. And then Democrats behaved so shamefully in relation to Kavanaugh that we had to eliminate the filibuster for Supreme Court appointments that we were holding in place, but because because they wouldn't play fair, that didn't work for Gorsuch, whatever. I, you know, it's all ultimately the whole question here is whether Democrats are saying, you know, what the Supreme Court is a political institution, and we're gonna we're gonna give up any thought that the Supreme Court is anything but a political. We need it there to be a backup legislature when we can't get the legislative remedies that we want and to make sure that there's nobody standing there who says that the legislative remedies we want once passed go too far. So we need to take control of this institution, not only ideologically, but in a partisan fashion. And that is very 19th century. I mean, it's just that the American politics in the 19th century, with the exception of slavery, if you want to call slavery an ideological matter, it wasn't, it was really power politics. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't ideological politics in that way. So I don't know what to say. The real question now is, does Biden get from October 9th to November 3rd, holding firm to this position that he doesn't have to talk about uh, yes. You know, he, yes. The, he the media, the media is going, I, I don't, he is not going to be pressed on this. You can already see the kind of, it's more of a, oh, we're so perplexed why he won't answer this question. And, and you know that if he was a Republican candidate for president, 
this would not be the narrative. It would be every day brought to your attention that this has not been answered. This has not been answered. It would be a debate question. It would be, I mean, remember, no, we, we've had two debates and the only person who asked this question was Pence of Paris. The, the moderators have not asked this. Mainstream media has not asked this. They've danced around pretending to ask it and then said, oh, you know, it's like it's like that emoji with the shrugging, the shrugging person. I mean, he will absolutely get away with it if it's up to the media. But I, I, I agree. But I think your your point is is valuable that it was Pence who put the pressure on and Donald Trump could put the pressure on if true. he was so inclined, but he won't. He no, cannot. He's incapable of it. He'll do the opposite. He'll he'll re- he'll rescue Biden from the moment by constantly yeah. overshadowing um, the, the news cycle with whatever his latest outrage is. Right. He also wants to be able to say that a- Amy Coney Barrett is my nominee because she says things that I want her to say. You know, it's right. like he would step on it in a different way because he wants to get political credit for his Supreme Court appointments. Now, here's here's the tweet that i sent you guys earlier but, but, that is yeah sorry well i just i just i don't know if you're gonna go off the top because i just wanted to ask one more question about this no i was gonna stay on the topic oh, okay. go ahead go ahead well, my question is so if he if biden um continues to um sort of squirm and evade between now and election day does that begin to harm him um in some slow-mo way i mean that is that's just not a good consistent look well, right. The whole question then is: Will he be badgered about it? Will will the traveling press corps? I, I mean, who? I don't even really understand how, what his interactions with the press corps are. Um, uh, you know, if he if everybody asks him at every interview about this, and he says the same thing over and over again, and he gets he gets more querulous and more, you know tetchy about it like uh, you know it'll 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 look bad whether i think but i mean that doesn't mean that it's gonna tell in any larger political sense but this is the where the role of the media is crucial because if they stay on him as they should um and he consistently refuses to answer it reopens a question that that the trump campaign has thus far been unable to make stick which is is he going to be beholden to the radicals in his party he's not people have not bought that he's a socialist line but this reopens that It, it raises this question again in the minds of every voter is he going to be able to say no to something that is extreme and most american voters think court packing is extreme Okay, so here's the tweet that I wanted to read out because it's it's important in understanding what I would what I would consider the liberal mindset that that is more is is predominant in Washington, um, but that uh, the press's vanity. This is one area in which the press's vanity may uh, tell against it. Okay, so Susan Hennessy who edits or is one of the editors of Lawfare blog, um, which, of course, uh, you know, uh, is now well known for having uh, basically posited that Trump was going to be impeached and and he's, you know, Trump basically, his name should be, you know, Trump, Trumpovich. And, you know, there's a cannon blowing. Ben Wittes, the head of Lawfare blog, is always, was always shooting off a cannon on Twitter every time James Comey blew his nose and all of that. So this is Susan Hennessy of Lawfare Blog, quote, I know the press is desperate to demonstrate they are tough on Biden. Uh, I don't even think that's necessary a bad instinct. Media should be tough on a front runner, but why won't Biden answer is lazy, embarrassing both sidesism. It does a tremendous disservice to the public. Why won't Biden answer is both sidesism? What 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 part of this question is? How is that both sidesism? I mean, people use both sidesism to mean consistency sometimes, but also to mean a really annoying comparison that is nevertheless legitimate. There is no comp. This is not comparable. The 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 stuffing of the Supreme Court with pliant liberal justices to transform it into a rubber stamp parallel legislature is not the same thing as appointing a justice to an existing vacancy. The attempt to draw an equation between the two of them is nakedly intellectually bankrupt and a a, a naked power grab, a hostile power grab that they cannot justify rhetorically. So they don't even try. But look, it should be the view of, 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 of the media 
and of Lawfare Blog, which, by the way, is a media organization and not some kind of, you know, I don't even know who the hell Susan Hennessy is, uh, for that matter, or who she was before she got this job. Um, she apparently was at Brookings, which is nice. She, she's, a, you know, it's a nice sinecure. Um, but my point is, like, you, you, you should ask any question and demand an answer, <laughs> On policy, they're running for office. the The job of the job of anybody, not only the press, but like any citizen at a town hall, anything, is you ask a question because you want an answer about policy, and they're not supposed to say, "I'm sorry, I'm not going to answer that question because I don't want to." I mean, they're not supposed to say it because ordinarily it would be the sort of thing that you could spend, someone could spend $100 million making commercials showing that you were not fit for the office because you won't answer very plain questions about very significant facts. Now, if you, there are questions like, have you, you know, did you stop beating your wife that are not legitimate? Will you pack the Supreme Court based on very, very public proposals to do just that from the leading intellectual lights of your party and your coalition is a gimme. Now, the question is, will this perspective, the Susan Hennessy perspective, is it going to haunt the press corps that is so desperate to have Trump out of office in every way, shape, or form that they're going to say, you know what, we're, we really are, you know what, we're tipping our, we're, we're putting our fingers on the scales here we don't want to make Biden look bad, and we're not going to make Biden look bad. But I did notice yesterday on Twitter that Jake Tapper and various other people are saying, Glenn Kessler of the Washington Post, can he really get away with this? So I, I don't know if I don't know if it can stand without a lot of That's the question they should be back. directing directly at Biden. Do you? But think how do they do that? They ask they, him. <laughs> they, yeah, they but where agree. where are they asking him? Ordinarily, yeah. they would all be on a plane with him five hours a day. He's not going anywhere. There, there is no interface. Yeah, but they and, did. And, they do it. They could do it every night on their on their primetime yeah. cable news shows, just like they did appropriately. I think demanding that Trump release his tax returns, like all of the norms that Trump broke as president, the things he was not transparent about, the the elisions of uh, and and the untruths, all of those have been called to the carpet. That is the job of the media, right? That's the press's role. And it shouldn't matter if the candidate has a D or an R after his name, but we do know it does. But in this yeah. case, this is not even a matter of like releasing complicated tax records. This is a yes or no question. Right. Correct Correct me if I'm wrong, but as of, or if this has changed in the last two weeks, but as of September 23rd, Kamala Harris had not held a single press conference or entertained a gaggle with reporters. I think that's she's, correct. She's, yeah. yeah. So she, she continues to to stonewall the press. And there's been some consternation, but not nearly enough to make her stop doing that. Well, again, the question is, what is the th- this is where I, I am. I am genuinely confused because of the nature of this race. We have this very interesting presidential race that is focused in a way that it has never been focused before on the person and the behavior and the personal conduct of one of the candidates, meaning Trump. This is an election that the he wants to focus on himself and his rival also wants to focus on himself, on him. And so we have this weird situation in which, and of course, the coronavirus then interrupting the normal flow of how campaigns are run. And is any individual thing, aside from the virus, going to break out as the sort of thing that could make people say, I don't know, I, you know I'm you know, i an undecided voter, but I really don't like that he won't answer the question about packing the court when, you know, Trump is going to go on Tucker Carlson's show and, you know, get, get some kind of remote medical examination by pseudo-doctor Mark, yeah, he's not, he's a real doctor, but a pseudo you know, a pseudo diagnostician, Mark Siegel, over the over television. 
Honestly, that this is the most surreal moment so far of the Trump presidency. The idea that the the leader of the free world thinks that the country wants to watch an old man get a physical on live television. Like it just, I, I, I'm baffled. By, by the way, he won't have a virtual debate, but he'll have a virtual physical. <laughs> I mean, honestly, like so I don't know what's going on on yeah. Friday night, but I will yeah. not be tuning in. <laughs> this redefines telemedicine. Like this is a new form of telemed. The Tucker Carlson Tonight telemedicine practice of dr mark siegel so my point is that every time trump does it like biden's like i'm not going to answer that question and then and then let's say they press him every day does even that break through just this general referendum on trump personally and okay no because donald trump will not allow it to break through donald trump wants a referendum on trump personally it's one he's going to lose apparently but he cannot stop doing that it's he is compulsive he's, he's compelled to do that that doesn't mean that this court packing thing that he's entertaining he's flirting with isn't going to be a political liability for him especially if he wins the election the ambiguity that he's he's entertaining here and he's allowing to to just sort of exist in the ether the bill's going to come due it's not going to come due from the right right the well, left the other- is going to demand he make good on a lot of these promises or ambiguous re- refusals to reject their their overtures let me throw this at you. Close Senate races all over the country, right? I mean, they're weird, weirdly close Senate races in places that Republicans should, you know, be like walking away uh, with reelection bids and all of that. Maybe they can use it. What if this, what if Biden's refusal to answer this question means that this gets elevated to a national level to the extent that they are demanded in the, in debates or whatever they're going through with their Democratic rivals who are trying to win in states that ordinarily they would have no difficulty re- being reelected in as Republicans. So therefore, the Democrats are theoretically not on the left of the Democratic Party, but trying to appear as moderates and kind of like, you know, just, I'm just like a good guy here. I just want to have health care and all that. It's like, where do you stand on court packing? The head of your ticket won't say where you are, but if you go there, you're going to have to be a reliable vote. You're going to have to vote for Are you going to vote for it if they ask you for it? And maybe it can get some kind of purchase there with the – they're talking about changing the composition of the Supreme Court for the first time in 160 years, and you're just going to stand there as some freshman and let them do it because you don't have the spine to stand up, you know, to the Washington swamp or whatever. Especially relevant for Lindsey Graham and um, Sue Collins. No, but Joni Ernst. I mean, Joni Ernst is locked in a tough race and – uh, I mean, there are these weird, tough races like uh, uh, Montana. You know, there are races where where if the Democrats actually were to – if there were to be a, a, a real wave, Democrats could be pushed over the top in place that, – that's what happens in waves, pushed over the top in weird places in Georgia, in – as I say, in Montana and various other places. So it's a, it's a, it's a weird moment. So maybe it can't hurt Biden, but if Biden doesn't handle it better – Maybe it could hurt down, you know, down ticket. Now let's uh, let me let me pull back and talk to you guys about today's sponsor, the Bradley Speaker Series from the Bradley Foundation. Because as we all hear every day, Americans are navigating through several unanticipated crises this year, and we the people, the Bradley Speaker Series, is a new video series that offers insights and ideas on the current challenges we face from some of the remarkable organizations the Bradley Foundation supports. So if you visit bradleyfdn.org liberty to watch their most recent episode featuring renowned education expert Frederick Hess, you're going to learn a lot. Uh, Hess is a resident scholar and the director of education policy studies at the American Enterprise Institute, where he works on K through 12 and higher education issues. He is the author of Education Week's popular blog, Rick Hess Straight Up, a regular contributor to Forbes and The Hill, and serves as the executive editor of Education Next. In this episode, the Bradley Foundation speaker series, We the People, with Rick Hess. He addresses the complex issues surrounding the start of the new school year, gives his take on the reopening of schools, the impact of social unrest on the learning environment, and what the outcome of the elections means for education. That's Bradley with an L-E-Y at the end. FDN.org slash Liberty to watch the video. New episodes will debut weekly, so come back often and subscribe to their YouTube channel to be notified whenever a new one is posted. And we thank the Bradley Foundation for sponsoring the Commentary Magazine podcast. 
So in Michigan yesterday, uh, we learned uh, that there was a plot uh, against uh, Governor Gretchen Whitmer uh, that was um, infiltrated and broken up by the <clears throat> by the FBI. <clears throat> Indictments were issued, and uh, Christine, get, let, let's 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 get some flavor of what was going on there. Um, well, there's there's a a lot we still don't know about the the political views and beliefs of this very strange group. Um, some of them appear to have been reaching out to militia member, other people in you know militia groups in Michigan. Um, they were all clearly others, by the way, were had bunches of videos up which showed them you know ranting and raving about all government. Um, in front of anarchist flags. So that would seem to signal, you know, a kind of a different sort of worldview than what we traditionally think of when we think of like white nationalist militias, for example. Um, so they were obviously, they, but but what it reminded me of, though, was actually that, uh, remember old Timothy McVeigh, that the kind of generalized hatred of the federal government in particular, or of the exercise of government authority on individual citizens, that sort of anger, which which we've unfortunately always had a sort of um, little bit simmering in, in the United States uh, was driven uh, or, or turned all the way up uh, to 10 with this group in Michigan because of the, the harshness, the harshness of the restrictions that were in place in that state, their obvious loathing and hatred of the governor. Um, and then, I mean, I, I think we have to also acknowledge the rhetoric around, you know, the, some of the rhetoric that Trump has, has initiated. He was, you know, he, he tweeted all these states, liberate Virginia, liberate Michigan. I mean, he had a whole list of, of tweets. Right, well, that's with- really, we need to slow down and say this. There was a tweet, Trump did, two words, capital letters with an exclamation point that said, liberate Michigan. And he did it with a lot of other states. He too. did, yeah. but he did liberate Michigan. And of course, there was, uh, Gretchen Whitmer was the governor mm-hmm. who was tagged with having championed emergency measures that included things like you couldn't sell seeds right right it, because you know you couldn't it, you couldn't buy seeds at a big box store or something like that um and so the the the, the measures that were written in were like shockingly and bizarrely inconsistent and nonsensical uh you know, uh, on what it was that was being it was w- w- that people were being uh, forbid forbade to 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 do having right. so she and was she kind of a locust point, and she also didn't apply them fairly because her own husband was breaking a lot of these rules during right. the time that they she was telling the public they had to follow. But Mike, this is really serious. We do not. We also have recent poll of a large scale poll. I think it was from Pew talking about whether or not Americans think violence is a justifiable thing to engage in um, in order to pursue one's political beliefs. And that number has doubled. um, And that is extremely worrisome. We've talked a lot on the podcast about political violence. I don't care whether they did it because they love Trump, hate Trump, hate all government or anarchists or Antifa. This is not something we should tolerate it. And it shouldn't matter whether whether the person targeted, in this case, a Democratic governor, has a D or an R next to her name. This is unconscionable. And we should all be condemning it. And I think the fact that there's been a lot of trying to explain away what's going on. And again, we still have limited information right now as to what these guys thought they were doing and wanted to do and good on the FBI for the infiltration and the, and the uh, indictments. That's great news. Uh, but this is probably going on elsewhere in the country too. And I think we shouldn't, especially as conservatives who often either ignore or try to explain away um, the, the right-wing violence, it's real, it's a problem and it should be condemned anytime it happens. First of all, if you're organizing and recruiting support for a terrorist plot online, you're conversing with the FBI nine, most of the time. You should assume that your interlocutor is a Fed. Um, but to the point that you made, um, Christine, about Donald Trump sort of contributing to this atmosphere, I don't think you can simply dismiss that. When this occurred, um, and, and you haven't to your credit, but some have, and when this occurred the president issued this tweet storm that I thought was really rather abhorrent. Um, yes. Yesterday. Yesterday. Yeah. Uh, where he, he sort of blamed her for being the target of a, of a kidnapping plot um, where he went off about how, you know, just as you said, she applied all these um, draconian measures and didn't apply them uh, fairly. And that's absolutely, it's absolutely true. And when some of those were protested, 
you know, she it was covered in the mainstream press as though that was a, a plot to overthrow the government in Lansing. Uh, and then she, you know, she uh, went off and, and said that this was going to be some if this keeps happening, there's going to be it's going to just keep going. The lockdowns will keep going, suggesting that it was a punitive aspect to lockdowns, which I don't think you can dismiss. Nevertheless, the president says after they foiled this dangerous plot, he says, he calls it my Justice Department foiled this plot. And, and the president, he should, she should be thanking me for this effort. And that she's not. She decided to call me a, you know, a white supremacist and and what have you. Uh, you know, this is this is contributing to the condition. Uh, t- uh, Soto tacitly saying contributing to the conditions that led to this plot against you. So you should open up your state, open up your schools, open up your churches, and then maybe this sort of thing won't happen to you anymore. I, I don't think that you can read that any other way. But yeah, it's like saying leave your door unlocked if you don't want someone to break into your house. <laughs> it's yeah. not an endorsement. It's not an endorsement. It's an explicit right. rejection of violence. Yeah. It is Look, nevertheless, it understands where you're coming from. 25 years ago, Bill Clinton got his political sea legs back after having been knocked on his derriere by the 1994 midterm elections by connecting the violence that you know the 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 evil of the Oklahoma City uh, federal building bombing to rush limbaugh and talk radio and this became a talking point it was irresponsible and horrifying that he did this and so but it 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 helped him get his sea legs back and it went on from there in 2011 when uh, congresswoman gabrielle giffords was shot in Arizona, uh, remember the press tried to tag Sarah Palin with responsibility for that because she there was an image on her website or something she had tweeted out of a gun site or a site on something or other, uh, also outrageous, shocking, and disgusting. And so conservatives have a long history of having to deal with liberals trying to tag them and tag us with responsibility for terrorist acts and for, you know, uh, horrible militia ideas and things like that. The problem here is that Trump is partly responsible. I don't know how else to say this. He put out a tweet that said, liberate Michigan, and a bunch of people who look at language like that, decided they were going to kidnap the governor to try to liberate Michigan. He is the president of the United States. It's not It's not a former governor of Alaska with a website with an image somewhere. It's in his name on Twitter. 10 million people read it. If 25 people get triggered by it, he has to share some of the responsibility. And the very fact that he said yesterday what he said indicates that he continues to share some responsibility for it. And I I take no pleasure in saying this because I think that there has been a there has been a, a habit over the last three and a half years for blaming Trump for things that Trump is not responsible for simply because liberals want to say that everything that Trump does is evil, you know, including the words a and the, and he can, and, and every breath he takes in is evil and all of that, but not this. He, 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 if he gets tagged for it, he deserves it. And, and it was terrible when he was doing it and it's terrible now. And we have literally a clear case of, of a, you know, post hoc ergo propter hoc thing happening. That's real. Um, there's also this, uh, just as the pandemic and the lockdown and the massive distortions that they have wrought across the the reality of our country, um, created conditions to give rise to black lives matter, violence and riots and Antifa and all that it will and has, and will continue to do the same to all sorts of assorted extreme groups that have been simmering for, for you know, a, a decade or so, including, you know, uh, 
neo-Nazis and the sovereign citizen movement, which, which some of these Wolverine watchmen kind of remind me of a little bit and socialists and anarchists of every stripe. I mean, these, they, we are, these are the conditions under which, um, these extreme fringe groups thrive and decide to act. Well, and that's why I think the other comment that Trump has made, uh, fairly recently that, that, um, speaks to your point, John, and to yours, Abe, is the stand by and stand down. That is an order you issue to people who you think you have some control over their actions, right? That's not, you either say, knock it off, like, don't, like, don't do this. This is not appropriate. Um, and we'll prosecute anyone who tries to, or even thinks about it, or even reaches out to a, an undercover FBI agent online to do it. No, he said, stand by and stand down to the Proud Boys. And that, that, that was really, an, that was bad as well. Because again, it, it's implying a relationship that even if it's not there, Trump is, has the conceit that it would be good if it was. I don't, I don't understand. I didn't understand it then. I didn't understand the tweet storm that Noah mentioned uh, from yesterday either. Um, and we should be able as conservatives to say, um, political violence, and we've talked about the congressional uh, baseball shooting, political violence can come from any direction at any time. It can be group motivated. It can be a, a single individual. It, it, it's, it's a reality. And we shouldn't, um, we should be able to, what Trump should have said is that if you don't, if you don't like what Governor Whitmer's doing, we have a process for dealing with that. And, and it had already started. I mean, she's, people have taken her to court over the, the seriousness of the restrictions and whatnot. Process and institutions are what matter here. And it's another, unfortunately, I think it's another sign of the deterioration of people's trust in their own institutions to temper the extremes, even when it's their elected officials doing it. Right. Well, look, there's an important aspect of this, which is that um, uh, from the beginning of the of the corona outbreak, uh, when we were talking on this podcast, Noah and we all sort of agreed that the, the public wouldn't be able to stand living under these conditions for very long and that something things would w- would happen right and the interesting thing is that when there have been these extra governmental responses let's say or 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 you know uh, crazy weird uh, off kilter responses to lockdown um the consequence of them has been to deepen the consensus in favor of the lockdown not to be give a voice to the necessity for the lockdown to end, to say, look, people are being driven crazy. We better stop this now. But to say, well, in a weird way, uh, the, these people make it necessary for us to continue to lock down, even though there's obviously no relation between this kind of a criminal civil disobedience or whatever you want to call it or terrorism and whether or not schools should be reopened or small businesses should be opened. But the practical effect of the embrace of disorder by people who followed Trump, you know, fistfights over masking and stores. You want to have masking for five years? Be the sort of person who develops a store, is ends up being somebody who punches somebody in the face for saying, can you put your mask on in a Walmart? That deepens the lockdown. It doesn't liberate the lockdown, which in an odd way means that people don't have, as a general rule, don't have a total lack of faith in their governmental institutions. It's like, I have these two choices. I either have this utter anarchy where people are demanding that they get free, you know, and they'll punch anybody who says anything, or I've got Andrew Cuomo and maybe between the two, I kind of pick Andrew. If you're giving me polar choices, by you know, if if I have a binary choice, I'm going to pick Andrew Cuomo over the Michigan Wolverines who want to kidnap Gretchen Whitmer. You know, I, so uh, that's the that's the horror of this situation. It's like what's going on here in New York. This uh, Andrew Cuomo said this horrible thing about how synagogues are causing disease and he'll close them and he'll close the schools and all this. There's all this evidence that schools aren't super spreading anything. This is all nonsense. Um, But then, you know, a couple of people, small group of of people in the Haredi uh, community in Brooklyn, then go around acting like goons and beating up reporters and stuff like that. You think that helps make the point that Cuomo needs to stand down on the lockdowns and let people practice their faith. 
it has the total opposite effect aside from being evil abe you're 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 you're, you're, you're i i feel that i'm 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 suppressing your natural ebullience here no i had you i i, I don't have anything to add to that <laughs> no i agree no whenever these things pop up if you for example if you are if you torture yourself by following andrew como's twitter feed um when he brings up uh, such in- incidents of um individual resistance to mask wearing and lockdowns the entire thread beneath him is what are you waiting for arrest these people make it happen force get the police on on the to, to get everyone to wear a mask i mean it's exactly what you say it is all these things um give people um evidence that we need much a much heavier hand of in the government look the guy who is at 52 percent in the polls who is leading, I believe we're now at almost a 10% uh, Biden lead in the Real Clear Politics and 538 averages, 10%, and solidly over 50% uh, in the poll averages, is everywhere he goes, he says, I want a national mask mandate. We are seven, eight months into this thing. The one thing that unites the people who hate the lockdowns and everything, or like the visceral thing that drives everybody crazy is masking. But it's clearly a deep minority view because the guy who is actually scoring absolute majorities in support across the country is calling for a national mask mandate. Okay, well, there's a little, just to put some clarity to that position because the Biden campaign has been all over the map on it. When the campaign tweets, it says national mask mandate. When Kamala Harris is out there, it says national, national mask mandate. When Joe Biden is pressed on this issue at an NBC News town hall, where is the federal authority for the president to impose such a thing? Joe Biden confesses none. It does not exist. You can impose such a thing on federal property, but no further. What he can do, he says, is call every governor uh, you know, into the White House and compel them to adopt a mandate at the state level. But he also concedes that probably most of the governors in this country wouldn't participate in such a thing. So he's more nuanced on that. That's a nuance that is lost in press coverage of it because we're allergic to that kind of um, you know, discrepancy. But Joe Biden has sort of softened that position insofar as he can't get it done. He would like to see it, but it can't happen. He doesn't. He has not the authority. He says national mass. It's a, look, Harris on Harris during the debate said on day one, Joe Biden is going to repeal the Trump tax cuts. Like you can't repeal the Trump tax cuts. Right. Those are those are the Trump tax cuts are law. A law has to be passed to repeal them and replace them with something else. Like, like they'll say anything. So it doesn't matter whether he has the power. Or well, doesn't have the power. Could, but he didn't say anything. He could have just said, "Yeah, national mask mandate," because no one's going to call him on it. Because how many people understand civics anymore? Um, but he didn't. He was more circumspect to his credit. I don't think it's to his credit. I'm, all I'm saying, whether or not he is circumspect, or what, I'm, I'm just saying that the forces, the pro lockdown, uh, the pro, you know, the forces that are are uh, there are two things: like people who are who think this is horrible for children that schools are being closed, particularly given the fact that there is no evidence the schools spread coronavirus, and it's obviously bad for education for development, for socialization, everything else, and bad for women who have to work. Uh, you know, it seemed to be um, disproportionately uh, burdened by what is going on here. And small businesses are being destroyed, all of that stuff. Like, that's the that's the serious part. And the serious part could throw Biden and the lockdown fundamentalists on their heels. Instead, what talk radio and everybody talks about is masking and they have polled this to a fairly well. They have focus grouped it. And what they know is that him saying, I want a national mask mandate is good. It's good for him. That's why he says it. He's not saying it. He wouldn't have to say it at all. It's a positive. And my point here is that the, the populist revolt against the lockdowns has failed. And the, the terrorist revolt against the lockdowns has failed. If anything, it has done nothing but solidify the doldrums that we are in. We just get a, a report this morning that the Broadway theater industry, Broadway, is closing until June of 2021. 
uh, you know, it is dead. It's gone. It, this is this is a this is a billion dollar industry that supports billions of dollars in tourism in New York State, and they have basically they have said we're 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 done. There is no season. There will be no Broadway season. Movie theaters remain closed. There, studios aren't releasing movies because New York and California are closed. We are living through a nightmare, cultural, political, tourist, whatever, everywhere because of this. And these, as as is always the case with terrorism, uh, when it is a failure, all it does is strengthen the argument against it, not 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 cause the forces of that they're fighting to their knees. But um, but that's <clears throat> that's a potentially very scary um, reality, though that, that that this translates into. Because if, as you say, the the populist revolt against lockdowns and masking is is failed and will in fact only make things worse um this translates into a message of so shut up and take it or it'll or or it's going to get worse that is that then i mean the cycle never ends that creates a sort of powder keg um environment right Look again. I, you know, this is this is you know become a uh, you know a, a sort of uh, unload on Trump after a good half hour of unloading on Biden. Mm-hmm. But um, if the president were able to make an argument that appropriate argument that the country needs to reopen that doesn't involve him saying that it's okay, you know that 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 uh, governors who support lockdown maybe they should be you know they you know winking at the idea that you know they're going to have a lot of trouble if they keep doing this right. or whatever if there were a debate in this country between lockdown and loosening in which there was a serious communicant on 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 both sides then maybe we could have a debate about it as it is there is no debate because the person who has to lead the debate is inconstant um, and steps on on the message, and then of course has no in, has no real interest in any of this because he is now wrapped in a psychodrama of his own devising about what's going to happen over the next month and whether he can turn things around and whether he can somehow turn his uh, disease into a positive and whether he can hand out drugs and whether he can do this and do that and starring in the ultimate reality show of all reality shows, which is can he win re-election with all of these headwinds against him and, you know, like, uh, and, and, and stage the greatest comeback in the history of comebacks. And that means that he'll do anything, any two hours, mm-hmm. two hours from now, he'll do something else. He'll talk about this. He'll talk about that. Every five seconds, it'll be something else. Which- As we're recording this, he's, I think, guest hosting Rush Limbaugh. He's no, isn't he having a virtual? This is an interesting thing. He's having a virtual rally. How many times has he coughed? (laughs) No, but he's having a virtual rally, which which is what we call appearing on a radio talk show now, apparently. It's got a very dirty feel to it. No, but it's like, it's like, it's like he's (laughs) having a virtual rally by appearing on a radio talk show. So I guess when I'm on a radio talk show, I'm a I'm actually having a rally. This is you know, uh, you know, people obviously podcasts can't be rallies, but you know, a radio talk show can can be a rally. I mean, my, I think essentially, you know, it's just this. It's he's just it's the throw stuff against the wall and see what sticks and what'll work. The problem is, of course, he won't give anything enough time to see if it works. We do have, is, yeah. We do have to take a bet, though, because we were talking about this earlier uh, privately. That uh, will he take the Pelosi bait that was just dangled in front of him like a like raw meat in front of a lion at the zoo, right? Uh, which is the Twenty Fifth Amendment Commission. She's just announced she's convening that, which is just literally bait for Trump. Will he resist that bait? My, my money's on no, but uh, you know. <laughs> Uh, you think he's not going to take the bait? No, I think he is going to take the bait on Tucker Carlson tonight while we while he live streams a colonoscopy or something. I don't know, but he's he, <laughs> there's no way he has that kind of discipline. He clearly, I mean, he's you know he's off the leash. Um. Yeah. Well, that'll be fun. I mean, um, there is an interesting thing with the Twenty Fifth Amendment, which is like all these people saying the Twenty Fifth Amendment has failed. 
because it turns out it's too hard to to stage a you know to stage a kind of a constitutionally legal coup against the president according to Max Boot it's terrible <laughs> it's terrible that the 25th amendment makes it really difficult for uh, unelected aides of the president to make the president step down from office for a while which we should really make it a lot easier now it's really important that at a time of deep political instability Max Boot gets to pick who the president is. Trust me, I've edited Max Boot. You don't want him to pick who the president is. Anyway, uh, with that, we can uh, call the weekend. We can we can wish you a wonderful weekend for those uh, who are virtually celebrating Sibchat uh, Torah tonight. Uh, please uh, uh, dance your heart out in your living room or in socially distant small gatherings of less than 50 people. And uh, everybody else have a wonderful weekend. And we will uh, be back to you on Monday. Even though it is a holiday, we will, in fact, have a uh, have a podcast. Uh, I don't know what we'll call it. We'll call it Columbus Day, but uh, you're not really allowed to call it Columbus Day anymore. They have not officially changed it. Right. They have not. No. So, we're institutionalists. They never will in New Jersey. We're institutionalists. We get to call it. Columbus. Oh, never the say more, never. The more you call it Columbus Day, the closer they're going to get to outlawing Columbus Day. It's true. Thank you very much. Well, I, I have faith in the power of T-neck voters to, uh, <laughs> to ensure that the traditions persevere. Okay, and with that, for for Noah, for we traditionalists here. Noah, Christine, and Abe, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.